Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. The story goes that early in Billy Graham's ministry back in the late 40s, uh, Graham returned to his hotel room one night after preaching and evangelizing to a large crowd uh, to find a woman he did not know in his hotel room. And she was lying on his hotel bed, and she was making come-hither eyes at him, and she was not wearing any clothes. And it said that Billy Graham, in response to this unusual sight, slammed the hotel room door closed and ran away. (laughs) Uh, The story of a naked woman in Billy Graham's bed may be more urban legend than actual fact. I've seen the story referenced, but it's not a story I've confirmed from like a primary source anywhere. But given the accountability measures that Billy Graham took for himself as a traveling evangelist, I mean, the story's kind of taken on a life of its own because Graham, Billy Graham, would famously avoid any situation where he met one-on-one with a woman. He would not travel alone with a woman in a vehicle. He would not dine one-on-one with a woman. He would not take a meeting with a woman in private either. There would always have to be another person uh, nearby if he was to meet with a member of the opposite sex. And this rule was famously called the Billy Graham rule, not by him, but by others. And Billy Graham's family testifies that even on his deathbed in the final months of his life, uh, Billy Graham was attended by one nurse if the nurse was a man. But if the nurse was a woman, there needed to be two nurses in the room at the same time. The integrity of Billy Graham's ministry, you see, was an important part of its success. It was paramount uh, to the success of his work. And so he and those around him, his colleagues, as they worked to grow and plan his ministry, thought that no expense, that there was no risk too great or too small to ignore. And uh, in our reading today, we're going to see that as good a, as a rule as the Billy Graham rule can be for someone like Billy Graham... Our man Joseph finds himself in a bedroom with a woman who is making come-hither eyes at him, and he slams the door and runs away. Um, But unlike Billy Graham, who sought out accountability for the situation to preserve the reputation of his ministry, Joseph is a slave of the very woman who is coming on to him. It turns out, as our reading will show us today, that we may need something more than the Billy Graham rule if we are seeking the Bible's admonition to flee this kind of romance and lust-infused immorality. In fact, my hope is to tell you about something better than the Billy Graham rule, that there's something in this passage beyond a salacious story of a wealthy woman abusing her power over a slave in a fit of lust and revenge. So let's play catch up. Last week, um, if you're on the podcast, you're a little late and that's okay. But last week, Mr. John Bryant was uh, with us to lead worship. That gave me some time to go visit family. And he was with you to discuss a horrible situation that Joseph had found himself in. 
You'll remember that Joseph was son number 11 out of 12 sons, but he was his father's favorite of the 12 sons. And there's a number of reasons why that was. And not only that, but he was an ambitious kid. He would rat out his brothers when they did wrong, and he would insert himself into the family um, as the superior son to his brothers. He kept saying things about the other brothers bowing down to him. And his brothers, the other 11 sons out of the 12, were so jealous of him and they were so angry and put off by the attitude of this uh, young man. Um, He should be at the bottom of the totem pole, they said, but he's risen to such prominence in his father's eyes by this behavior that the text tells us they couldn't speak peacefully to him. They couldn't be in the same room. They couldn't be around him and have a conversation with him without it devolving into anger and frustration and shouting and, and the like. And so they loathed Joseph, all 11 brothers loathed Joseph with this Cain-like fervor. And so when the opportunity eventually presented itself, these brothers in their anger moved to murder their brother, Uh, that they were, they moved to murder him. And instead of murdering him and leaving him to die in a well out in the wilderness, um, they saw a traveling caravan of slave traders that came by. And so they said, well, you know what, let's get rid of the body and make a little money too uh, while we're at it. And so instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. And that's where our story picks up today. Uh, Joseph has been taken and bound and he is taken into Egypt where he is sold into slavery. A quick reminder for all of you uh, that ancient slavery in this time was not the same thing as antebellum American U.S. Civil War chattel slavery where people were basically just livestock. Um, Instead, the system was more feudal. Slaves could be anything from farmhands. They could be milkmaids. They could be gladiators. They could be butlers. They could be craftsmen. They could even be something akin to like a manager or a CEO. And, And so don't get me wrong. It was still a bad place to be. But a good master could figure out how his or her servants were gifted, how they were skilled, and set them to work at the tasks they'd be good at. Uh, So it's not just the same thing as Civil War-type slavery and early America slavery. We're looking at something different that's still bad, but maybe not quite as bad. So when Joseph is sold to an Egyptian man named Potiphar, who happens to be the commander of the palace guard, uh, that he works under Pharaoh... Uh, and, and takes care of the, the bodyguards and the palace guard. He's the head of Pharaoh's secret service, as it were. Um, we see that God gets involved in Joseph's story. Because as Potiphar is working with this new slave, seeing what Joseph was good at, what tasks he could set Joseph to, um, he finds that Joseph is a good man, that he is devout, and he's blessed by his God. And so whatever Joseph took, took a task on, whatever he did, he succeeded And so the text tells us that things go very well for Potiphar and his household because Joseph is working for him because God likes Joseph. Here's what the text says. I'll read it to you. So Joseph found favor in the sight and in his sight, Potiphar's sight, and attended him. And he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And blessed, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, Potiphar did. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. I mean, I just love that imagery, that he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. How good would your life be 
if the only daily decision that caused you any concern or, or discomfort was, I wonder what I should have for dinner, chicken or beef. Maybe I'm feeling salmon. Right? That's the only question you have. The only question you have to answer tomorrow uh, when you wake up in the morning is, gee, I wonder how I want my eggs cooked today. Where should we go for lunch? Joseph proves to be such a capable manager that he is given charge of everything. And so the only matter that Potiphar has to deal with when he gets up and, and gets home from work in the evening is what to have for dinner. And meanwhile, Joseph, um, you know what? He's got food to eat. He's got a place to sleep. He's making some career success. He's got his master's goodwill. And so by the grace of God, Joseph is going to land on his two feet in Egypt when uh, things could have been exponentially worse for him. So despite going through all of this with his family, being rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery, well, it hasn't turned out as bad as it could. Sadly, things don't continue to go well for Joseph all the time. Uh, things don't stay that way. There's a fly in the ointment. There's an issue that arises. Because even though Potiphar is a good and gracious master, um, his wife is, if you will pardon the reference here, uh, she's straight out of the TV show Desperate Housewives. I haven't seen Desperate Housewives. I don't want to see the show. But it's pretty easy to put together what it's about, and Potiphar's wife is probably from this show. And Joseph, you see, at this point, is likely in his early 20s. Uh, that we know he was 17-ish uh, when he was sold away into slavery. And um, at this point, in his early 20s, the wife of his master... Um, has uh, developed um, feelings for him of a less-than-holy sort. And so she takes on this role of a seductress, almost. And so even though everything's going well for Joseph, we find out that he's trying to give Potiphar's wife a taste of the Billy Graham rule. Um, that he's trying to avoid her, he's trying to not be in a room with her, he's, he's trying to, to, to duck and dodge and not engage with her, because, well, things will go very badly for him if he does. It's not like he can tell his master about the situation, right? Imagine Joseph going up to his master and saying, you know, hey, boss, your wife is coming on to me. Could you tell her to back off? You know, that's a sentence that's going to get you fired in the year 2021, and it's going to get you killed in ancient Egypt. And so Joseph uh, works hard, but he just can't seem to avoid this, you know, Mrs. Robinson from the graduate character forever. Uh, Potiphar's wife is able to corner Joseph alone. And grasping his outer robe and not letting go, she demands, right then, right there, that he sleep with her. Well, he, she's grabbed the outer robe, but Joseph is able to wriggle out of his robe and flee the scene. But Potiphar's wife uses the coat he leaves behind to get revenge on our hero and his uh, chastity. Holding onto the coat, she uses it to, to fake evidence that Joseph forced himself onto her. Uh, flipping the reality of the situation to its opposite. And so Potiphar, seeing all this, uh, gets so livid and so angry, as one understandably might, and he throws Joseph in jail for attempted murder, or excuse me, attempted adultery, and attempted uh, assault. It's not just any jail either, right? It's the king's jail, where people who have received the displeasure of the pharaoh are sent to sort of, you know, rot away and die. So things had started to look up for Joseph, but now things are even worse, if that's possible. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers with the intent of leaving him to die, but he's rescued from the pit, only to be sold into slavery by those same brothers. 
and he's pursued by someone in power over him to satisfy their carnal desires, and then he's framed for the lust of another and thrown in jail. It seems that in Joseph's world, no good deed is going unpunished. One of the toughest things about the book of Genesis is that it's a book that is frank about the destructive capacity of the human libido. And this is a tough thing to preach about, but it's also tough for the 21st human. It's also tough for someone from the 21st century to acknowledge, right? That the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the immediate forefathers of Joseph, um, it's a story of a family that has struggled mightily um, to embrace godly expressions of the bedroom life. It's a story of, of a family who has constantly made life harder for themselves by not following God's um, understanding of uh, human physical intimacy. Um, throughout Genesis, you and I know this, wives are pimped off uh, to monarchs. Servants are used as involuntary surrogates for infertility treatment. Marriages uh, nearly fall apart from jealousy um, of shared beds. To say nothing of the stories that were so um, R-rated that we had to do a special podcast for them instead of doing a Sunday service. Stories about Lot and his daughters and, and Dinah and what happens to her. Stories of childbirth that go awry. I mean, there's a whole lot in Genesis about how the bedroom life, um, when it's improperly observed, it will lead to nothing but chaos and heartache. There's even a story that precedes this one in Genesis 38, which features Joseph's brother Judah. It's one we have not preached on yet because it just might be the worst story in all of Genesis, which is saying something. And so, well, you know, I'm going to get you a podcast episode that in the next week or two here, and it will be, you know, a very hard R podcast. I'm just letting you know, which is to say then, all of that to say that for the first time in Genesis, we have a biblical figure who does the right thing when improper extramarital affairs are offered? What does he do when the opportunity comes for him to make a mistake that his family might have made before him? He runs for the hills. He books it. He's Billy Graham opening the hotel room door and seeing, taking one look and closing it and running away. Rather than give in uh, to the opportunity at hand, he flees. And even though he winds up in jail, he still has his integrity. And so for the first time in the entirety of the Bible, somebody declines an offer to misbehave with their romantic physical intimacy. Very important. Uh, what is different about Joseph? Maybe there's something here that's different about Joseph that we can look to to see why now? Why is it we wait until now to see somebody do the right thing, uh, as it were, when it comes to um, following a proper bedroom life uh, in their own life under God's watch and providence. And I think the answer lies in the conversation that Joseph has when Potiphar's wife first comes to, comes on to him. Here's the conversation. I'll read it to you right now. Potiphar's wife says, come here, big boy. Uh, and Joseph says this, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. And if we stop there, we may think, well, good for Joseph. He recognizes he's getting out a good master in Potiphar. He doesn't want to do anything to Potiphar. But that's not how the conversation ends. So, so he says, I could not do this to my master. He's very kind to me. Things are going well for him and me too. I don't want to ruin it. But here's how he finishes the conversation. He says, 
how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's remarkable. Joseph's final thought about why he's not going to receive the invitation and respond positively to the Potiphar's wife's invitation for extramarital affair, his final thought is not about hurting his master. Um, it's, that's not what he's thinking about. His anxiety, his great fear, is his relationship with God. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice how many times in this reading God shows up after being virtually absent in the preceding chapter when things go very wrong for Joseph's life. Five times in the opening of our reading, God's work is highlighted and emphasized. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Uh, His master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him, Joseph. The Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that Potiphar had in house and field. You know, some people look at the story and they see a man uh, who resisted temptation to sleep with a beautiful woman. And I don't think that's the whole story here because Joseph's conflict is going beyond give in to temptation or don't give in. There's something deeper going on here because Potiphar's wife is a woman of power. She is using her bedroom to exert her power over an immigrant slave from another country to satisfy her own desires. The question to Joseph is not, will you resist temptation? You know, that's kind of like the sound talk you give, um, the the prep talk you give uh, evangelical teens at youth group, you know? Will you resist temptation? That's not what's happening here. The question for Joseph is something deeper. It's something like this. Which power and authority are you going to listen to? Your master's wife or God? Which authority, which power will you listen to? Your master's wife or God? In Genesis chapter 4, after God rejected Cain's sacrifice, um, Cain gets uh, angry and jealous. We talked about this, gosh, maybe last May or June, we did a sermon on this. And so this is way back at the beginning of Genesis. I want to point a verse out um, that an angry and jealous Cain has his sacrifice rejected and God pulls him aside and says uh, to Cain, he gives Cain a very serious warning. He says this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The Hebrew is very graphic here. The word crouch is used of animals and refers to the stance that a lion takes before it pounces to catch its prey. Uh, So you know if you've got a cat and it's going to pounce on a toy or if you've seen a dog kind of get ready to to, to launch and start running that that pounce motion, that's what the imagery here is. And the word desire, right, Um, the, the text says its desire is contrary to you. Um, the word desire here is a word that means romantic physical intimacy again. It's, it's related to that. And the vision that God has of sin is that you have to be so incredibly careful because it is actively waiting, uh, if you don't mind, uh, to have its way with you, to, to, to make it a euphemism. Sin is just like what we see in our text today. Um, it does not care about you. It only wants to satisfy its own ends. Um, and so uh, sin is like a master saying to its slave, 
Come take care of my needs and you'll get a little something on the side there for yourself. So Potiphar's wife is like a crouching lion, eager to entrap Joseph and pounce on him, right? Um, while that's going on, however, Joseph has a different relationship that he's also you know, already in. That while Potiphar's wife is waiting at the door to pounce, to use Joseph to satisfy her own fleshy desires, uh, there's something else going on in Joseph's life that's deeper. Because in Joseph's world, he has gone through so much suffering. Um, you see, his family has been stripped away. His freedom has been stripped away. Um, he at one point was trapped in the bottom of a pit, powerless and facing death. And then he was shackled and given to slave traders. When all of that happens to someone... Um, they come to recognize that the only person they can count on to watch them, not themselves, not their family, not their friends, the only person who's going to look out for them is God. Um, that, that Joseph has recognized that there is a relationship in his life with God that is super powerful. Um, it's beyond anything that uh, Potiphar's wife can offer. And, and only God has been there in the darkest days. And so Joseph knows that God is the only reason he's even alive. And, and, and so when he rejects the advances of, of Potiphar's wife, he's doing something different than, I think, fleeing temptation. He's choosing the master he wants to serve. And that's very loaded language because Joseph is a slave. He's, he's a slave in the situation. And what he's saying is, I may be a slave to you, Potiphar's wife, but I am truly a servant, truly a slave of a God who loves me infinitely more than you and your lustful craving ever could. I'm reminded of another man, this one in the New Testament, who was caught in a similar trap between two warring authorities. You may remember at the start of his ministry that Jesus of Nazareth was led away into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And while he was there, he prayed and he meditated and he fasted for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, weak and exhausted, he is approached by Satan. And Satan comes with a similar set of invitations. You can imagine Satan coming to the hungry Jesus with come-hither eyes, saying, all you gotta do is turn that stone to bread, my friend. But the final invitation gets to what I'm talking about here today, because what happens? Satan takes Jesus to the top of a great mountain and shows him all the kingdoms and their glory. This is from Matthew 4. You can look it up. And, and, and Jesus says to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Again, the invitation from Potiphar's wife is similar. Fall down and worship me. Make my own desires and my own needs your only goal. Give me what I demand, and I'll give you a good time in return. Um, that, that, the temptation of Joseph and the temptation of Jesus, they share a lot of overlap. But, you know, Jesus, the way he resists temptation is he continually goes back to Scripture and referencing his own relationship to God. He says, look, God is, is, is my food. God's word is my food. God's faithfulness is um, it's so trustworthy I don't have to think twice and test it. And he says, God is the only person worth serving. At the core of Jesus' rejection of Satan, it's not rooted in something like willpower or fleeing temptation, as it were. It's, it's a deeper question of who is his master. Because Satan comes to him and says, I can be your master. I can give you the world. And Jesus says, no, 
um, because I have total devotion to my own God who can do the exact same thing and more and do it better and do it in a way that doesn't demean me and make me your servant. And so we should note that like Potiphar's wife, you know, Jesus, his answers do send Satan away, but not permanently. It just pushes him aside until later on in where John's gospel says Satan eventually will enter the heart of one of Jesus' disciples named Judas uh, to help orchestrate Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and execution and burial. And so when we reflect on Joseph answering the question, who is my master, reflecting on his relationship with God, it gives him uh, that thought process, who is my master? Who am I going to serve today? you got to serve someone. That's what Bob Dylan said. Um, he, he's able to resist the Potiphar's wife and her advances and keep his integrity. And the same thing happens with Jesus. Uh, Jesus, reflecting on his relationship with God, resists Satan and keeps his integrity. Um, bad things happen to Joseph and Jesus. They keep their integrity. One ends up in jail. The other ends up executed. And again, this won't be the last time we look at these comparisons between Joseph and Jesus. Um, so, you know, keep a mental tally when we do this about talking about Jesus and Joseph together in parallel here. But at the end of the day, what they were able to do is they were able to say, I have a better master. And at the end of the text in Genesis today, what we discover is Joseph's choice of God as his master is indeed well rewarded. Joseph's master took him and threw him into the prison, the palace, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was put in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge and all the prisoners who were in prison. And whoever and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So even in jail... Uh, this pattern of God's faithfulness manifests itself again. Um, our story began with God's provision to a faithful man who had been sold in slavery by his brothers. And our story ends with God's provision to a faithful man who has been framed for adultery and imprisoned with the worst criminals of the day. You see, Joseph has picked a higher power. Joseph knows his true master. He has aligned himself with someone who is infinitely more powerful than the wife of his master playing desperate housewives. If we believe in the power and the grace of God, maybe we shouldn't even pat Joseph on the back like he resisted the advances of someone. And pat, you know what I mean? Like It's not like he sat there and resisted temptation. He made a thoughtful, rational decision. Who is the more powerful among these two? Who loves him the most? Who is the better master? And God is more powerful and loves him more than Potiphar's wife ever could. And that's where the impetus comes for him to say, no, no thanks. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this and jeopardize uh, my relationship with God. I do not want to sin against God. He is my master and not you. So let me close this morning with a question, uh, sort of an odd question here. Um, I want to know what powers in your life are, are beckoning for your submission today. Um, what masters in your life are beckoning you? Um, what, what masters are crouching at the door, ready to pounce? Our world is filled with these crouching tigers who would love nothing more uh, than your submission for the purpose of their goals and achieving them. Uh, for some of you, the great power over your life might be the power of body image. 
Um, and that power, when it's taken hold of you, it's going to control the food you eat. It's going to control the, the clothes you wear. It's going to exercise. It's going to control the, the exercise you have to do on a regular basis. It's going to control when and how you decide to spend time with people. It's going to thrive on your shame. The fires of your shame will be stoked. It will hide in your innermost thoughts. It will consume your health, physical and mental. Um, and so you'll, you'll have a nice body. You'll look pretty. Um, but the master of the body image, um, it's not one that loves you or cares about you. Uh, for some of you, the great power in your life, uh, the, the tiger crouching at your door may be the, the tiger of wealth. And when that power has taken hold of you, you know what it will do. It's going to control all your job prospects. And it's going to control your time and your schedule. And it will consume all of the things that bring you any sort of other joy, like your friends or your family. And what you're going to do if you are um, overtaken, if you've been taken hold by the power of um, wealth and the power of needing to have more, you will run on a treadmill of more until you find yourself lying in the grave. That's all you're going to do is just run a treadmill for more, 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 and then you're going to die. For some of you, I, the, the great power in your life might be the power of charm, of people-pleasing. And when that power has taken hold of you, it manifests itself in your relationship with others because you don't just become um, enslaved to people-pleasing. You, you become enslaved to the wills of everyone else. And your own emotional state and your own self-worth become codependent on how others are feeling. And you're going to spend your life performing for their approval instead of attending to your own very legitimate needs and wants. Uh, you'll never have any friends either because uh, you're going to be performing for them all the time and they'll never know the real you. And, well, you know, your family will um, judge you by how well you perform. And when you stop performing or where you, you can't perform, your family's going to say, who are you and where's this other person that I like better? And so that's what's going to happen to your life if, if the, the, the power of charm and people-pleasing takes hold of you. And I've got one more, and, and I'm going to tip up to a line and back away for some of you because it may hit too close to home. Because for some of you, the great power in your life is the realm of politics. And when that power is taken hold of you, it's going to start to replace your critical thinking with this sort of lizard brain reactionary anger at ideas you disagree with. And 49% of people in America will become your mortal enemy uh, without ever having to see or meet them. You're going to be some, become so preoccupied with what happens in Harrisburg and Washington, D.C. that you're going to forget that the most important things happening in your life are the things that happen within a 25-foot radius of where you're currently standing. And your own personal happiness and your own well-being will be tied up with the success or failure of your preferred political party. And so some of us are, are enslaved to this, some of us are enslaved to that. But I got, I'm here to tell you this morning, friends, that the only master out there with your own best interest in mind, the only master out there who loves you for you and doesn't want to use you to satisfy his own ends or wants or desires, is the God of our reading. Um, the one who rescues Joseph when he's in a pit. The one who blesses Joseph when he's in the employ of Potiphar. The one who blesses Joseph even when he is in jail. Every other master will use you for its own ends. God, on the other hand, loves you and rescues you from the pit simply because he cares. He'll even die for you if that's what it takes. And in fact, he does. Um, and that's another thing we'll talk about between Joseph and, and uh, Jesus at a later date is their death and resurrection. You know, Satan uh, did succeed in arranging for Jesus' execution in Good Friday. Um, he thought he had won. He thought he had beaten the Son of God into submission. 
He thought he had retained his authority as the ungodly prince of the earth. The world, the flesh, the devil, all of the enemies of God's goodness, they had all conspired and said, follow us or die to the Son of God. And they killed him for not following their plans. And yet, just like God was in Joseph, uh, was in the jail with Joseph, even in death, God was with his only son. Three days after the supposed triumph of darkness over light, Jesus rose to life again. As the old hymn goes, the powers of death have done their worst, but Christ their legions has dispersed. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. Alleluia. So if God is in jail with Joseph, then maybe there's more to come for our man. Maybe there's a resurrection for Joseph as well, whose, um, whose state in life has fallen tremendously over the course of the past two sermons. But for now, we can take comfort knowing that God has not abandoned his servant Joseph, even as he once again returns to a pit. Maybe we can say the same, that God will not abandon us in our pits either. In Jesus' name, amen. Pennsylvania.